This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. But there are ways that we can be innovative with our teaching to help students with these areas of hardship. It's not possible anymore to expect a student to spend £100 every time for a presentation to, to pin it up. We don't need that. We can do it in other ways. What to do if you spot discrimination or poor behaviour in the office. So I believe there is a huge piece of work to do on bridging that step between university and practice. The students coming out with up-to-date knowledge in climate crisis, materials, BIM, graphics, I think they should be paid for the, that knowledge. I run. I run as fast as I can, as far as I can, as often as I can. <laughs> I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broke and in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife husband or significant other and substantially more than you which gives you a great life given the ability to choose your clients when you work and who for or have you attained financial freedom in architecture if you're in the first two categories surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties how is this affecting your mental health are you suffering from depression or even despair please share subscribe and comment to support the channel i have with me today victoria farrow who is an architect associate professor and subject lead in architecture for part one two and three in architecture at the leicester school of architecture de montford university now, before this, Victoria was an associate professor and course leader for BA Architecture and first year lead at BCU for almost 10 years. And Victoria is an activist, compassionate educator, and passionate about making positive change. She's happy to grit her teeth and get what needs to be done, done. Maybe that's because she's from Hull. Now, firstly, welcome to the second series of the Broke Architect podcast. And I just want to ask, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Sunny, sunny outside my window and uh, happy for it to be a Monday, the beginning of a new week. Lots of potential. Uh, yeah, oh, feeling good. Fantastic. It's, uh, it's the complete opposite where I am, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> the sun is beaming through my window. Well, maybe maybe we could start with if you could tell us a little bit about your background and why you wanted to study architecture. As I understand, your father is still practicing as an architect. And, uh, you know, I also as, as well as that, I also want to hear about your father's unique career story. Well, my immediate response was I didn't want to study architecture. But looking back now, I think it had always been the pathway that I was destined to take because I grew up around drawing boards, rotaring pens, prints, because my dad's office is adjoined to the house, literally next door. And so my brothers and I would often wander into his office to kind of see what he was doing and also got asked to uh, help out with kind of odd jobs like doing gardening or cleaning properties that he was working on and we laugh about it now because you know it's one of those funny stories where you kind of moan that your dad was sending you off to do the gardening or do the painting at a particular place but that's how it was my dad is an entrepreneur 
And so it was kind of like a family business um, that we were brought up in. I think he secretly always hoped that I would become an architect because he hadn't come through the university route. So it's really nice that his daughter was going to go on and achieve the title. Um, And he always said that I succeeded where he couldn't. But I kind of look at his career history and, and, and just think it's amazing what he's achieved in his life. Um, But yeah, at the time when looking to select a university course, I did everything possible to try and do something else. So I did art, French and Spanish at school and I sat and sifted through every single art and design course in the UCAS book because in those days it wasn't online. It was, of course, the big dictionary like book um, from UCAS. And I went through every single art and design course thinking what I could do that was not architecture. And then... I remember a distinct moment where I was sitting in the front room with my dad. He said, well, why don't you do architecture? Because I was, the deadline was coming up. And I think there was a bit of teenage, like huffing and puffing of like, oh, okay. And I put it down. Off it went to my six choices we were allowed. Yeah, it went off. And that was my application. But dad's entrance into the profession was completely different. So... I had kind of sailed through school and passed all my A-levels and didn't didn't have any problems getting into my choices. I got into all of them, whereas dad had failed one of his A-levels. So he had missed his place um, going to Canterbury, which is where he wanted to study architecture. And the father of the girlfriend he was seeing at the time was an architect. So he'd offered him a job producing drawings and that's where he'd learned technical drawing and drafting where he got paid 32 pounds a month there and then he moved around a few different places where he picked up additional skills and um, he started to build up his own private work so um, he was doing that sort of weekends and evenings as well as his his job and then he worked he was telling me yesterday because I caught up with him briefly and mentioned I was coming on the podcast and he said that he was working for one particular practice where he actually had more work on privately than he did coming through his employer so he decided at 20 to um, to leave and he set up on his own and so he was doing kind of work on extensions and he told me that he's getting paid 20 pounds per drawing and if he worked really really hard he could push out three drawings a day and he had a kind of section his dad was in transport and he he kind of sectioned off a six foot by six foot square um, with breeze block office for himself which just fit one of the big a naught drawing boards and so that's where he would spend all of his time working on his projects and he kind of earned enough money to buy a house which amazingly back then was 500 pounds that's what he started to get into property eventually he built up enough money and the opportunity came up to buy the house he where he lives now which was originally three shops which he he bought and he said he had 10 pounds left in his pocket that was in 1979 so he moved in there and worked so during the day he'd be in a room downstairs working on his drawings uh, with the dog at the time Sam the Labrador and then during the evenings and the weekends he'd be working on the house doing construction work which had no no roof on one section and then he'd sleep in the downstairs room um, which had no carpets and then shortly after I came along and he and he sweetly said the only room he could afford to carpet was my baby room And he grew from there. So I think his experience in property development in the early days, he continued to to do that. He wanted to kind of make a good business to support his young and growing family. So he continued to do property development and his practice is now award winning in Hull. So he's won awards for redevelopment and conservation. Yeah, he's built his property development company from from nothing and at age 70 now, I know if I picked up the phone at 8am, it would be answered with Hello, Robert Farrow Design Limited. So yeah, he's still kind of a a big influence in my life. So hardworking, so much grit and determination. I think he's influenced me in more ways than I realise. And it sounds like he's not a Brock architect as well. Architecture's been good to him. I think he was a very Brock architect. He 
probably couldn't have afforded to go to university. So his mum and dad definitely couldn't have afforded to support him. His mum was uh, kind of sewed the sails for boats. They're, they're all from Hull. And his dad was a fisherman, um, a minesweeper in World War II, and they were not um, well off. And so dad really had to find a way to, to make money. And definitely at the beginning, it didn't pay. But I think if you asked him now, he would have said that property development supported him in the early days to get the business growing. But he's built up a really good reputation and he's northern, so he's really stingy. <laughs> he doesn't like to spend any money. So, yeah, he's not extravagant and he's kept it all uh, tight. <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful story there, Victoria. I'm interested in you. Yeah. went on to study architecture at university you know yeah. so I'm interested in the good the bad the ugly experiences of architecture studying architecture obviously I'm an educator so I'm an educator today and I can reflect back on my own training and critique it and do so regularly it, it was tough because I was starting to train in the beginning of the millennium not revealing my age but it was at the tail end of the 90s and so architectural education was very different so this was pre-Instagram, pre-social media, pre-email, really. In terms of the level of support I received as a student compared to what my students receive today, it was starkly different. So to contact a tutor, you had to go and knock on their door, but only between a certain time. So it's between 10 and 11, say on a Wednesday, you could go and knock and hope that a tutor might answer the door. There was no online learning. So I, I was thinking about lectures actually the other day and our lectures were in big hall. So I was in a huge group of first years, about 200, so in big lecture theatre. And if you wanted the university notes, which were a printout, black and white, of PowerPoint slides about the size of a postage stamp, so you couldn't actually see them. If you wanted the notes, you had to be quick because there weren't always 200 prints. So you had to race to the front of the lecture hall and hope that you'd be able to get handout. Uh, and if you weren't there, then you didn't get a handout later. It wasn't sent round. There wasn't kind of the, the online learning facility to be able to share the resources. So you had to be in lectures to get the notes or you had to have a really good friend who would take good notes, not bad notes, so you could catch up. You know, CAD teaching was, we were handed out an ARCHICAD CD and told to learn it for a project. Um, so it's quite hands off learning my dad often joked about it been teach yourself architecture and it certainly felt like that to me um I'd come from a really supportive school with close friends and then landed at university in a very intense environment my first week I remember the master's students doing a tour and telling us as new first years that actually we had to sleep in the studio and so naively, I took my pillow and my duvet and I did sleep there a couple of nights in the first week thinking that's what architecture students had to do. And then I quickly learned they were joking. But there was this pressure to work 24-7. And I think that was very hard to manage as a new first year student having not experienced architecture education before. And then I think we're talking at the moment at De Montfort uh, in how we're kind of going to be releasing marks to students and all the different technologies that we have available to do that to make it easier for staff but also make it kind of good for students so they're receiving it in a kind of private way and I was reflecting on how I used to get my marks and, and our lecturer didn't like us coming into his office or to the reception of the building so he would pin the marks to the tree outside and we'd have to run to the tree and just God hope that you were not bottom or had failed because there you were on the tree uh, on the bottom of the list. So it was quite tough learning architecture in those days. And, and the studio environment, again, was kind of different, totally different, sometimes a bit hostile, certainly in, in reviews. It, it felt quite quite aggressive at times but that was the time and I do not think that my university education in architecture at that time was that unique I think that was um that was the period of time and and thankfully with the help of technology and social media and all these things we've moved forwards but yeah after I'd done my BA architecture I decided I would not come back but when I was looking around 
during my placement year, I, it was at a time when the RIBA had taken accreditation away from quite a few schools. I knew that I needed the RIBA accreditation to become an architect. So I, I stayed where I was and did my master's and my part three, which um, were a little bit better. And I think they were a bit better because I had a bit more confidence in myself after the placement year and I'd grown into myself and I understood architecture a bit more. Yeah, so that that was um, how I spent my seven years. And uh, in between kind of my studies, I was working three jobs at some points. Um, I did, uh, I was working as a chambermaid from 5am until 9. And then I went to a delicatessen and worked from 11 till 5. And then I worked at Sainsbury's and I did the 7-Eleven shift in my summer holidays to kind of help fund my studies. Yeah, I look back now and I think, how did I do it? I must have been absolutely exhausted, but then you're young. <laughs> now I'm older. <laughs> I don't think I could do it now, but definitely then I had a lot of energy. <laughs> that, that's really fantastic, Victoria. I understand you began life as an architect, working part-time in practice whilst teaching part-time. What really made you want to go into teaching? Yeah, I think I... I was working for myself I had my own practice and what was quite depressing was when I qualified it was in the 2008 recession so I'd been an architect for a total of one month before I got made redundant having had the cold experience of my architectural training I entered into the profession with lots of energy and passion thinking right I'm out now I'm going to be an architect and then and then I was made redundant but it wasn't the worst. I had a friend who who was only an architect for an hour before finding out that he'd been made redundant. So it's really tough at that time. So I ended up setting up my own practice much earlier than I thought I would. And I was doing um, also a part-time job in facilities management, just picking up some money where I could. I got this cold call from Lincoln University inviting me to go and be a visiting critic. I... I think it was just a kind of round robin. I don't think it was specifically requesting me, but I accepted the opportunity and I went over to Lincoln to sit on a panel. It was reviewing third year work. And I do remember thinking, oh, wow, I've made it to the other side because I think during my training, there was very much a kind of students versus tutor. And at some point during that process, I'd made it to the other side with the tutors. And there I was sitting on the panel reviewing students work but I noticed during that day that I was able to offer a positive experience to the students so I was able to give feedback in a positive supportive way and I left just feeling so I was on cloud nine I was smiling I just thought wow I absolutely loved that and quite quickly after I was I was invited to lead a third year studio at Lincoln University and then also a second year studio a year later, I think I applied to Nottingham Trent University to they had a part time role. So just a two and a half days a week, I was teaching vector works um, and various other digital tools. And then probably as many academics will say, teaching kind of pulled me in. So I went from a 0.5, two and a half day a week role to a 0.8, four and a half, four days a week. And then eventually full time kind of stepped away more from from doing so much practice work. But I just loved it. I found that the, compared to um, sitting behind a screen all day doing CAD, I could work with students and support them through their studies in a way that I felt I hadn't had. And that made me feel like I was making a difference. Even if it was very small at that time, I felt like I could turn a student's bad day into a good one. You know, if we could talk about their project and make them feel more confident and more positive about it. Um, that really uplifted me so yeah so then I just I opted to do teaching full-time and the rest is history <laughs> and we're going to come we're going to come back to that <laughs> please tell me the purpose of the association of architectural educators and your your involvement in that and what successes has this association had really yeah this is another interesting story so Quite early in my academic career, when I was working at Nottingham Trent University, I was offered the opportunity to attend a conference, which was the National Conference for the Beginning Design Students, so NCBDS. It was in, 
it was 2011 and it was in Nebraska. The opportunity was to sit as a chair on a panel um, at this conference and that required me to review papers coming in and to either approve or reject or to approve with comments. So I got exposure to kind of the behind the scenes conference and then uh, we flew out and I sat and chaired the panel at this conference in Nebraska. The beautiful thing about this conference is it's a rolling conference and it moves around different universities each year and the university will host and it will showcase the the projects and pedagogical practice of architectural educators in the US. So it's a place where academics are coming together and they're sharing what they do in the design studio. Now, Instagram only came along in kind of 2010. So this was 2011. And usually up until that time, the only way to see what schools of architecture were doing was if you went to the degree show. And at that point, you would see the final kind of polished project you wouldn't see all of the, the guts of the design process or the briefs or the work that the academics and educators had done with the students in the studio. All of that would kind of be lost and you'd just see these beautiful things pinned up on the wall. But for me at that conference, I remember just being absolutely amazed because there it was. There was all these kind of papers and presentations about different ways that you could teach communication skills or different ways you could integrate technology into the design studio and all of these amazing conversations that I'd never heard before and I thought what I was just like completely bowled over and so when we came home uh, myself and there was about three or four other academics got together and started to talk about what we could do in the UK that would allow architectural educators to have the experience of being able to kind of share practice and projects specifically on looking at the design studio we decided to set up the AAE the Association of Architectural Educators we weren't sure how big it would grow at that time I remember the first meeting been rather clunky in terms of you know what's this thing going to be and what are we going to do But we set four aims for the AAE, and I'll read them out briefly, which was to develop, support and represent communities of practice and learning in architectural education, to foster inclusive dialogues between the AAE community, students and employers and and educational and professional bodies, to encourage research and scholarship of teaching and learning in architectural education through critical and reflective discourse, to promote the value, richness, quality and diversity inherent in architectural education. So that was how the AE was established because at the time and still now there are bodies representing students and then there is a body which is SCOSA which represents the heads of schools of architecture but there was nothing in the middle and so the Association of Architectural Educators is to represent architectural educators and we now have almost every school of architecture in the UK is a member Uh, We have an annual conference, which has been running since 2013. So I ran the first conference and we had over 33 countries represented at that first conference. So coming from all around the world to kind of talk about design studio. And we have uh, a journal which publishes outputs called Charette. And that still stands today as the only journal of architectural education in the UK. So it's grown far Um, beyond what we could have imagined. And I think also there's lots to do and lots to kind of build on. But it's something I'm really proud of to have been part of the beginning of of such a kind of group. (laughs) That's absolutely wonderful to have 33 countries coming together and being part of it and representing nearly every architecture school in the UK. It's, It's incredible. And there's another incredible thing that you you also do as well. And can you please tell me more about this BIM in series group, which I understand is a hosted conference in Birmingham, and you will soon host one in Leicester. I understand you run it with students. I don't know of any other BIM sort of conference out there that's run with students. I think it's fantastic. I think we are unique. BIM in series was born in much the same way 
as the AAE, which was a small idea that grew. Um, and I think definitely my experience from the AAE has helped me. As I said before, I, I volunteered to run the first AA conference in 2013, and I had really no idea what I was doing. I was really young, signed up and then found myself kind of burning 200 CDs the night before the conference. And what I did learn was how to run a conference and how the inner workings of a conference are organized. And so with that experience, I knew that I could always do something else. In around 2016, there were a lot of conversations about how we should integrate building information modeling, BIM, into both architectural education, but also I was having conversations with practitioners about how they go about working with BIM in practice. It was still an area of, of nervousness. And I think actually still today, some practices are kind of nervous about adopting it. And certainly ed the conversation in education continues to be ongoing about where do we teach BIM to students? How do we teach BIM to students? And so I, I organised what back then was called BIM Camp at Birmingham City University for an afternoon, which was intended to be just a series of small presentations for students and practitioners to come along to and get more knowledge on BIM. But it got quite a big interest. So we had about 75 to 100 guests come to that BIM Camp on the afternoon. And the students at, at VCU absolutely loved being involved helping me so it was something that we could do together so the following year I kind of put a call for interest out to the students to see if they would be interested in running it as a like a formal conference that was when BIM in Birmingham first launched which was 2017 um, and I had great support from Vectworks the software company who provided me with t-shirts and bags for the event the student team in the background was growing so the students were really passionate about getting new skills. I declared everything on the table. So there was nothing off limits that I said the students couldn't do. So if they wanted to get involved with marketing or graphics or speaking with the speakers or helping me with reviewing papers for the conference, then, then they were allowed. And I taught them as, as we went along to gain those extra skills. And quite often I got students who perhaps had anxiety in studio or were less confident, perhaps networking or speaking to practices about getting jobs. So they would come on board and perhaps work with me a little bit more closely and maybe they'd copy me in the, on their emails or send me drafts or um, we'd kind of have one-to-ones about how to approach practitioners at the event and things like that. So there's learning that was going on in the background of this 2017 event and then that was really successful again and we closed with 250 guests um, in 2017 then agreed to just run it as an annual event and it became an established part in the calendar at BCU so just growing again with every year about 35 students would join me become team BIM and they bought really beautiful additions to the event. So they did BIM cakes. So one year we had BIM cakes with pencils and protractors. And another year we had BIM cakes with kind of digital print. So they brought a level of creativity to the event, which I couldn't have done on my own. And then I used my network through the AAE and through the American groups to secure some really fantastic speakers. So we have practices like Zaha Hadid, Grimshaws, Foster and Partners, Big, coming to present their work as well as kind of the smaller practices. So it's become this kind of really fantastic annual celebration of BIM and other things that um, people put forward that are kind of in the digital realm that on the surface looks like a typical professional conference, but then behind the scenes is a group of really creative students that are doing beautiful things like making BIM coasters or BIM bags. It's really lovely. So it's a really special event and it's something that has grown. And yet now I've moved to um, Leicester, we'll now do BIM in Leicester. So the BIM in series um, has been created to enable other universities to host the event. So who knows, could be BIM in somewhere else next, but BIM in Leicester 2024 is the next one. Fantastic. And you're perfectly placed to answer this next question. 
Uh, My next question is, you know, do you believe that someone with great presentation skills is graded higher than someone who can design really well, but doesn't have those self-taught skills? And I'm just going to add something to this. So I'm interested in the rigor of your assessment here that someone could have a great design, but they may be weak on the software side of things. This is where I've seen architectural education evolve in a positive way. I think we need to recognise that obviously presentation skills, or as they're referenced now, more communication skills, is about communication of the idea. So communication through verbal, graphical, model making, digital skills, um, and presentation on the wall or presentation digitally. They are very much separated out from the design so through the assessment they should in my opinion have a criteria for the communication of the idea so how well has a student communicated what they are doing the design development process leading up to the final proposal how well have they done that and then an assessment criteria on design so the resolution of the design and by separating them out through the criteria It means that a student who has maybe an absolutely amazing design, but perhaps not so strong communication of the design, they can be awarded the marks for their design. And then they know very clearly that it's the communication of that that has let them down. And then they have a very specific targeted area that they can work on with their feedback. Um, So perhaps they were kind of excelling in the drawing, but their model making wasn't so strong but their design resolution was very good, so we can understand the design. Or it might be the other way. They might have a really unresolved design that is struggling, perhaps in its relationship to site or concept or design development process, but their communication skills and how they are communicating that idea are really strong. And that should be reflected very clearly on the feedback sheet so the student can understand where they are doing better and where they're not doing so well. That's good. I'm glad you, uh, you, you're addressing that because I think that's something that I've heard a lot of students and, and ex-students who are now architects kind of comment on, you know, how do you, how do you sort of reconcile that? Fantastic answer. Love the response. My next question really is relating to, um, you know, dealing with crits. So do you see a lot of students challenging or debating with you during crits? Or is it is it kind of more, as I've heard a number of times, you know, students just agreeing with you and they're keen to please? And even should we be using the word crit as well? Um, I think the responsibility of how a student responds in a crit or I prefer to call them design review because I think the word crit now historically has negative connotations so certainly for me a crit was something to fear something which was unknown unpredictable I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen and I think historically that word now it it has more negative association than positive so I do prefer to use the word review with my students or design event but I think how the academic or how the person leading that studio frames the design event or design review the responsibility lies with them how they frame it to the student so the student should be coming into those events understanding that it is for exchange of feedback it's for them to present their work and gain comments back from the critics to develop their idea, to make improvements to their work. If a student is coming into that kind of scenario and they don't fully understand what it's for, and then you have a panel of reviewers giving comments suddenly at that student, then the response will be, because we are human beings, will be to feel perhaps attacked. And then you will get the challenging or the strong debating or even worse, 
a student just wanting to please and then leaving that particular review feeling that they haven't got any answers or useful feedback to move forwards. There's a really fantastic book, which is um, The Architecture Crit. Um, one of the authors was a good friend of mine, um, Rachel Sara, and that unpicks what the crit actually is, should be, could be, and tries to reframe it. I had the privilege of working with Rachel when I was at BCU. I'm in agreement with that book in that students should be partners in the process. And so if the tutor or academic can frame it in such a way that it's positive for students, then it should be much more of an exchange of ideas between the two rather than a kind of challenging situation for either the tutor or the or the student I do think we still have a bit of a way to go but certainly the institutions that I've been part of they have been framed in a really positive way for students because it's stressful isn't it you know you've worked really hard on that piece of work and you're pinning it up and you're exposed and so it's really important that the the people kind of in that panel recognize that yeah, I agree. You could have some guest lectures in that you need to also carefully manage, I would suggest as well, uh, when, when when they come in to do crits. Um, I want to ask about attendance now in lectures. So what is your experience of student attendance and what are the barriers, do you think, for students attending those essential lectures? I, I've said it earlier in that we're managing human beings Attendance is linked to that, I believe. There's multiple reasons for students not attending. I think sometimes we can be quick to judge and think that a student's not attending because they're lazy or they couldn't be bothered to come. But actually, it's not the case. The students that I have taught, had the privilege of working with, quite often have other things that are preventing attendance. And this is certainly growing definitely since the pandemic and also the financial crisis. Um, the pandemic has brought upon us a mental health crisis, particularly for undergraduate courses. Um, and students are suffering with mental health conditions that were ongoing before, but also this new level of social anxiety. Um, I've had students who are too anxious to come out of the house because they're struggling to get used to the new world and not been online or they've become reliant on been online and now finding it difficult to kind of engage with with groups perhaps and then also with the cost of living crisis I've had students who have struggled to pay for the bus fare to get to university or have had to work so I think the um, the architects journal did a survey last year and it showed that undergraduate students 43 percent of undergraduate students are working 15 hours plus per week to support themselves when on an architecture course so sometimes you encounter a student who hasn't attended and that's because they've had to go and work in their job because they don't have enough money to 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 eat or to pay their rent and so I've had to be very strong with myself and also teams before sending any emails saying you know you've not attended or confronting a student about not attending uh, to have that conversation about perhaps why they haven't come in and and yes sometimes you know you get the answer well I slept through my alarm you know I, I didn't I couldn't be bothered to come but more often than not there's a real reason for that lack of attendance and engagement and there's something they're struggling with that is preventing them from coming um, and it's an ongoing problem and something that needs to be carefully managed which is doesn't have an easy solution certainly not with kind of mental health and the financial crisis. You've really thought deeply about the answer to that question there is a huge mental uh, crisis I think among students since the pandemic even people in work as well this, this can happen with people not wanting to come back into the office. So, yeah, I really appreciate you answering that question. What are your bad experiences with poor behaviour? I hinted this in uh, the previous question from external architects who are invited to come in and 
critique or whole design reviews um, for students' work? You know, does bad situations happen sometimes with external grades? Yes, sometimes. As I said before, a bit like the responsibility falls down to the academic or the tutor leading that studio to communicate. So both communicate to the students about what is this event? What is the purpose? What will you get out of it? Why are we doing this? So the student understands that they are coming to receive feedback and support on their project. So that's the student side. The other side that needs to happen is the studio lead needs to speak to any external critic coming in. So they're coming in cold. So you have studio tutors then you might have visiting tutors and hourly paid lecturers who come in for one day a week and they're working in the studio they've already been briefed and they're already familiar working with the students but the other scenario is that architects from practice come in and sit on a panel much like I did at Lincoln University when I received that cold call and it is down to the academic and the studio tutor. It's their responsibility to communicate to those externals the purpose of the day and how you are to behave. Sometimes it can go wrong where there's a misunderstanding between the external critic thinking that the work on the wall should be finished, whereas in fact they've been invited to a kind of interim review where the work isn't finished. Again, I would say the responsibility lies with the studio tutor and the academic to clearly communicate to the external critic that this is, a, a, you're seeing a snapshot of where we are halfway through the year, the project isn't finished, so that that doesn't happen. Sometimes you do get just a bit of ego coming out on the panel from visiting critics, which can be more difficult. And sometimes a little bit of maybe historical anger from their own architectural education. So they feel that it was like that for them. And so therefore, this is how it should be for our current students, which is obviously wrong. And if it has happened, which is very few times in my presence, but if it has happened, then I will have a quiet word with the external critic and potentially ask them not to come back because it starts to undermine the whole purpose of the review, which is for the, we're there for the student, right? We're not there for ourselves. We're there to support the student and to develop that student's project. And so if it becomes a situation where you have an external talking about their own work or going off at a tangent, then that becomes unhelpful for, for the student. Yeah, it start, we start to lose value of that time. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, what are the challenges for academic staff? Yeah, I'll, I'll ask it as simple as that. I always laugh to myself and smile outwardly when my students say to me in kind of May, June, oh, I hope you have a really nice summer, Victoria. And I say, oh, thank you very much. Knowing that actually one of the biggest challenges for academics, I think at the moment, and this is not just where I am, it's across the country, is that summer period, which over the time that I've been teaching has been slowly eroded. So when you finish in kind of June and you've got the degree shows, the perception outwardly might be that we all go off and sit on a beach until September. <laughs> but actually, it's becoming increasingly difficult to take annual leave during that time because you finish in June with that cohort of students and then you have to manage the students who have not passed so you enter into the reset period now through covid that was absolutely massive it, it led to a lot of staff burnout through the summer trying to support um, these huge groups of students who hadn't passed successfully and then marking the work and you have to mark it and get it through the reset exam board which for some places in is in July kind of mid-end July and then other places it's in August and then of course through that period as well you've got prep you've got planning for the next year you might have staff recruitment if a staff member has left and that all beautifully dovetails into the start of clearing so something people might not be aware of is that academic staff are on clearing duty 
So it's a bit like a call center. So I would be there from 5.45 a.m. waiting for the clearing calls in uh, mid-August. And you're on a rotor. So during that time, you're not allowed to take any, um, any annual leave through the clearing process. And then clearing kind of finishes, well, in, actually doesn't finish officially until later into October, but the, it calms down. Um, towards the end of August but then of course you're preparing for the new students arriving in mid mid September typically early September so that time during during summer is something that has concerned me and continues to concern me as an academic because I do remember my early days as a full-time academic and during that summer we used to have a summer rotor where one of us could go away and then we'd just have skeleton staff on the ground it's not like that anymore it's um it's much more intense so academics getting a proper break during that time is is a challenge um and then obviously the ongoing financial crisis and how we manage that with the students coming in things that we can do on the ground is a challenge, the mental health crisis and the impact on staff, because with every staff member, obviously there's a kind of responsibility for pastoral care. And that's always been the case. And obviously you want to make sure that your students are are okay, but the pastoral care um, is massive. The demands on academic staff to support students and they do it willingly. It's a huge demand emotionally and also with time and one of the biggest things I've noticed and that staff feedback to me is that when pastoral care goes up for staff, where are we getting that time from? What else are we dropping? And actually, there isn't anything that we're dropping. So the responsibilities of academic staff are going up, but no more time unless you work at evenings and weekends sometimes, which does happen. So it's quite demanding. When do you get a break in all seriousness? Christmas is good because everybody stops. So the university closes and everybody goes away. And I always think that time is really good because nobody is working. Everybody is forced to stop at Christmas. So no emails come in. So if you're on annual leave, everybody else is as well. But the other times of the year are quite hard to completely switch off unless you're really strict and you put your emails off And that's it. But when you're in a position of responsibility and you know these other things are going on, it is quite hard to completely switch off. No, I really appreciate you uh, saying that because I wasn't aware of some of this. So I appreciate that, Victoria. Um, You've you've touched on some of this now, but I'm, I'm really interested in the emotional challenges of your role. And I understand, you know, you're close to your students they you know they're navigating one of the toughest degrees in the world and all you know they're all from different backgrounds and different family structures so i don't know is, is there anything you want to talk about there on these emotional challenges with uh in your role yeah well i've said it already but we're the, the students are human beings with lives um and life happens in the background and so when you're managing students move through any course this isn't just architecture really you are also managing their their lives going on in the background so you know things happen but there have been some instances which have been really challenging to manage emotionally particularly if I think of some for me one just last year there was one instance where I I had to work with the police to get a student um, out of uh, her her home uh, because she was unsafe. She was communicating with me, which was completely fine. I was in a position of trust and I was communicating with the police. There was no real other option if I'd have kind of cut communication with her and tried to pass it on to a different person at the university. There's no guarantee that we would have been able to pick up that communication again. I continued to communicate with both sides and it probably took, I would say, six hours for the situation to resolve. And I did it willingly, um, but there are things like that where you finish the day and, and you have done all of the things that you're supposed to do in terms of completing all of the necessary kind of risk assessments and all the training and... Uh, 
passed on the information to the relevant parties at the university so that you're handing over. Um, but the emotions from that day stay with you and you go home and, and you can't help but kind of absorb some of that and and sometimes have a cry and sometimes, you know, need some space away from family and friends just to digest um, the day. When you're looking after students who perhaps are kind of living on sofas or don't have the money to feed themselves and they're going to food banks and they're coming to cry on you or with you about that situation and you desperately want to help them and you know within your role you you can't I would love to kind of give money for food and things like that to my students but you just you just can't so then you have to go away for your weekends and those people are on your minds you're thinking how is that person getting on and you know that person is sleeping on a friend's sofa for the night or you know that that person isn't really safe going home or that person has expressed suicidal thoughts to you and you've you've passed that on you know to the mental health and well-being team etc cetera, etc cetera, and followed the other necessary steps but you carry that you you if you're human you you absorb and carry that so sometimes it can be really emotionally challenging it's hard it, it can be hard yeah, switching off must be extremely difficult. Um, I can I can definitely understand that one. Okay, I want to talk about student hardship next, and you have men- just mentioned this, you know. But does it vary across different institutions in your experience? And also, can you can you share any examples where students have overcome this student hardship and then gone on to succeed? Yeah, I think. Um... When I was working at VCU, I saw more student hardship than I have in other places that I've taught or perhaps been guest critic or or visited. And those students are from kind of a variety of different backgrounds. Some are kind of first to go to university. There, I, I did see more students struggling financially. One example stands out to me, and it was a, a student in his final year, and he he couldn't afford to pay his fees, um, his final part of his fees. And if you don't pay your fees, you can't graduate. So he was faced with the prospect of being on course for a first. Brilliant student, very capable, so talented, on course for a first. And he his only option was to crowdfund. So on the one hand, I stood back with admiration, thinking, you are so determined and I was hugely proud of him. But on the other hand, I thought, what an awful situation in your final year to be faced with crowdfunding, sorry, for the last bit of your fees. Thankfully, he did raise the money and he went on to graduate and he did really well. But I think with the cost of living crisis, this will only get worse. Universities, thankfully, the ones that I have been working with are moving more towards a a structured week of lectures. So when I was studying, you might have an hour lecture on a Monday, you might have one on a Tuesday, half a day on a Wednesday, then you might have studio on a Thursday, then you might have, you know, 45 minute lecture on a Friday. Uh, We can't do that anymore because students are working. And if you structure your timetable in such a way, then you're limiting students being able to work. So at De Montfort, and BCU, where I worked before, it was really important to structure the timetable so that the teaching happens on two, possibly two and a half days a week, and leave those clear days for students to work in jobs so that they can get part-time um, jobs to support their um, to put support their studies. And universities also they have kind of lots of um, roles that they make available to students, kind of working in the student shop or working in the print shop. Uh, working in the workshops where they can learn additional skills but also bring in a little bit of extra money and I think that helps to to support these students yeah I would say that student hardship I saw it becoming increasingly bad post-covid and I think we've got more unfortunately to unpick so whatever we can do things like digital reviews rather than physical printouts recycling models 
to allow students to save money on materials. We are in a climate crisis after all, so we should be thinking about these things for both that and also to save money for students. But there are ways that we can be innovative with our teaching to help students with these areas of hardship. It's not possible anymore to expect a student to spend £100 every time for a presentation to, to pin it up. We don't need that. We can do it in other ways. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I remember my own expense and I was on a full grant. <laughs> and even I suffered then. I, I suffered then with building models. Wonderful. The next one is, I'm interested in, can you tell me about the aspects of your role that people are not familiar with, with an, an academic role that may, maybe people in practice just would not know? the things that you do yeah I think the academic role can be kind of divided up into a number of things now which I certainly wasn't aware of when I started to work as an academic you have your own uh, and it's sometimes it can be quite hard to kind of manage that time so you've got your own kind of week which is never the same by the way it changes all the time last minute but you have your week of you know your scheduled teaching and your prep time and your admin but then also you have to develop your own profile. So I suppose much like an architect is doing CPD, academics are doing research and kind of external projects in order to maintain up to date and build their own career profile. And sometimes at peak times, that's the first thing to kind of get squashed. So, you, you know, you leave your research or you leave your external things to do because the week is the day to day is um, absorbing the time and I suppose that's why I reference pastoral care so when pastoral care becomes heavier then the research maybe gets less because I have to deal with the immediate but other things I suppose might that they might not know might be um yeah the clearing duty so sitting in effectively what's a call center and answering calls and uh kind of I've answered calls not just um for for architecture but for other courses and kind of worked in yeah call center scenario cleaning studios the emotional side of being an academic and kind of supporting students I don't think externally the the reality um, is fully grasped of what's involved it can be every day both on email and kind of one-to-one -one meetings with students who are struggling social media I've got about six Instagram accounts that I that I'm behind because at universities there's a there's a kind of marketing team typically a central marketing team but then academics would be expected to if you want something like Instagram you do it yourself so that's not run by universities so that's typically by enthusiastic academics kind of behind the scenes wanting to market their courses and share the work that you're doing from inside and, and getting outside and then there's other things like um line management obviously which will be in all industries but i did not know about you running your own instagram account and just until today so that's uh, that's really <laughs> that's just one <laughs> <laughs> that's just one i'll have to try and find the other uh the other couple of uh instagram accounts yeah okay so what happens to students when they get into practice and they don't have the support of the university? You know, it's a big, it's a big cut, isn't it, for leaving university and going into practice. So are there any examples that you can share of that sort of step into practice that you've, you've had fed back to you? Yeah, I think there's a big gap here. And actually, it was one of the things that made me want to come on the podcast because I was kind of witnessing a bit of a bashing towards architectural educators maybe from architects practices who feel that students are not practice ready or um, kind of ready for practice but there is a there is a big gap so schools have changed to accommodate the the changing pupil that's coming in you know kids are now au fait with social media youtube and all these things and so schools have had to adapt and move forwards to accommodate the changing society and universities too in tow have had to adapt to change as we are receiving students who 
how coming through this mental health crisis, who are coming through the cost of living crisis, who are social media savvy, who are digitally savvy, courses are adapting to that. And then students leave the university to um, get jobs. And one of the pieces of work I was doing that, that was happening before I left BCU was some talks to help students know what to expect when they go into practice not just things like how to put together a cv and how to get a job but how to analyze their contract how to what to expect in terms of pay what to do if you're asked to work over hours what to do if you spot discrimination or poor behavior in the office um how to negotiate leave or how to have those conversations with your employer if you suffer from anxiety and we have students who have support at university for example extensions or additional support for a mental health condition or a physical health condition who then leave and then they have to figure out how to either have that conversation with the employer to say I have dyslexia or I have anxiety and and have the conversation about how to manage that in now a practice role or they don't have the confidence to say it and then really struggle to do without the support that they've had in place through their training. So I believe there is a huge piece of work to do on bridging that step between university and practice if we don't do it, what will continue to happen is stu- I'm witnessing students either leaving their job because they can't manage or have been really miserable in the office, struggling to manage. The other thing is the students coming out with up to date knowledge in climate crisis, materials, BIM, um, graphics. I think they should be paid for that knowledge because quite often they're going in as the new person to the office and they are passing on that knowledge to the practice they've been relied upon to disseminate that new knowledge the pay doesn't reflect that and I suppose some examples is I had a student contact me last year who's been paid 15,000 a year and he had no idea that that was way below the RIBA pay scale and so I had to have that conversation with him to try and coach him to go back to his his employer to, you know, talk to him about increasing that wage because it wasn't acceptable. But I've also had students who have expressed me a difficulty in being able to pray. So I teach a lot of Muslim students and at the university there is a prayer room, dedicated prayer room that they can access any time that they wish to go and pray but in practice if there isn't a prayer room which let's face it, it there is not often a prayer room or a prayer space then they have to book out a room to go and pray um, and it's not necessarily always been accommodated these are the issues that are coming back to me but if the students who are leaving don't have a contact at university or a mentor or um, or a friend who is an architect that knows what is okay and what's not okay, then the students are going into practice and, and finding it hard and we're doing a disservice to the profession by doing that. So yeah, so I think coming back to my point, I think there's a massive piece of work to do bridging university and practice and that's on both sides so universities equipping students to what to expect in practice but also practices acknowledging that what universities are doing and the support in place and how we have that exchange Um, and it can only be done with positive communication on both sides and learning from both sides no i absolutely agree and i think that that piece of work can't come soon enough it really can't it's incredible yeah okay we're um we're at nearly at the final well we're at the final question is there any advice for a work-life balance you've kind of said on this podcast about the emotional challenges the workload the lack of time really to have any downtime you know what do you do to distress de-stress i run i run as fast as i can as far as i can (laughs) as often as i can (laughs) yeah i've always been a runner my aerobics instructor introduced me to running 
and I've not stopped since I was 17. I've run ever since. So I tend to go running or swimming sometimes to just um, think things through. It's often when I have the best ideas. So I think Bim actually was born from a good run. I'll go off and kind of just lose myself to my music and kind of come back feeling a lot better. So yeah, take some time out running. I'm starting a, a Leicester running group, so you'll have to come. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's amazing how you can fit all of these uh, all these different things in as well as as well as teaching. I just want to thank you for being on the Broke Architect podcast on the second series. It's great that uh, we've had an academic to come on the uh, on the podcast. Um, just really want to thank you for, for for coming today. Sure, thank you very much for having me. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel.